friend of ours, it was his birthday, and the tradition is that he has donuts in the morning, and we all meet our friends at this donut shop. And so, you know, we're already trying to get out of the house. We're running behind. You know, our daughter's not happy. She's crying, and it's already stressful getting out of the house. And then we get in the car, and we're on empty with no gas. And so we think, and so it's just insult to injury. And so we go get gas. And now when I go to the gas station, I did something that I never do, you know. And when you're in a fluster, you just do things that you don't typically do. And I did this. I took my wallet, and I set it on top of my car. And, you know, and, and, and looking back and said, what? why in the world did I do this? And uh, so I set my wallet on top of my car and finished filling up with gas. And sure enough, just drove away and... And we're driving down the road, and my wife turns to me and she says, you know, this is a cash-only place. You have, you have your wallet with you, so we have cash. And I said, yeah. And so I'm, you know, driving down the road, and I say the inevitable words that a man says to his wife. I can't find my wallet. <laughs> and, you know, and she's holding her composure. And, and so we had this challenge, and unfortunately, we turned around, drove back, drove down the road looking everywhere, and... We, for whatever reason, we could not find my wallet. And just an illustration that uh, us men, we have this weakness of memory that, uh, that afflicts our, our male species. So, you know, you can remind your husbands and uh, fathers when they return, say, Dad, we, we know you don't have the best memory, but we still love you. So, um, but our passage today touches on this a bit, that uh, not only do men have weak memories, but we all do. We, we forget things, and even unintentionally, you know, we do our best to try and remember uh, our keys, our wallet, you know, appointments, birthdays, anniversaries, and, but still we forget things, and it's, it's something that we find. And most of the time we think this isn't something we're trying to forget. But our passage today in Psalm 78 shows that at times we can be forgetful in negligent ways and things that we ought to remember in life that... There's things in our lives that are important and significant, and that forgetting them is detrimental to not only those around us, but to even ourselves. So if you could turn with me to Psalm 78, and we'll be reading from this passage today. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bibles. Uh, it's probably the largest book in the Bible. And, um, and just by way of introduction to this psalm, it is one of the largest psalms, and I want to just give you a preview of what we're going to be seeing. Um, it's a psalm about the mighty acts of God when he delivers Israel. So Israel had been in captivity, in slavery to the Egyptians, and God delivers them out of this and takes them through the wilderness, we'll see, and then eventually leads them into the promised land, which is Israel. It's also a psalm about telling Israel how not to forget God or what he has done for them. Um, we'll see it in the very beginning verses. It's also a psalm about Israel's rebellion and how they have forgotten God. And lastly, it's a psalm about God's forgiveness of Israel's sin, of their rebellion and their forgettingness, forgetfulness of God. So turn with me to Psalm 78. Now I'm gonna, just going to read portions of this, and I'll alert you to when I'm changing verses so you can follow along with me. And we'll start in uh, verse 1, and we'll read to verse 8. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. A masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. 
I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their generation to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, if we could move forward to verse 32, and I'll read about uh, the next 10 or so verses. And this is after God had led Israel out of the wilderness and performed amazing wonders before their eyes. It says, In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them, but he restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan. If you could turn with me to verse 56 on the next page. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger, with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. 
So this is a long psalm. It's a heavy psalm, and it's a glorious psalm. There's the history of Israel is encapsulated in these 72 verses that we see here. And this morning, I'd like to show us that there is one thing that we can learn from this psalm, is that God does not utterly forsake his people, but he has provided a path for them in the wilderness. God has not utterly forsaken his people, but he has provided for them a path in this wilderness. And that path is his son that we will see unfolded in the passage. And I'd like this morning to look at this passage in three different ways. And you see them in your bulletin in front of you. The first way we'll look at this is that Israel rejects God. The second way that we'll look at this passage and that we'll see here is that God rejects Israel. The third thing we'll see is this way that God provides, the shepherd king that he gives for their salvation. So our first point this morning, Israel rejects God. See, over and over in this passage, we didn't see the acts of God. We looked mainly at Israel's rejection of God. But over and over, God had performed these amazing wonders for Israel. They were in captivity in in Egypt, and God had performed these seven wonders, these plagues that he poured out on Egypt to deliver Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And they saw this with their very own eyes. And they were spared, even from this angel of death that killed the firstborn of every son in in Egypt. Then God led them out into the wilderness. He parted a sea, an ocean, in essence, and they walked through on dry land. Then he led them into the wilderness, and he fed them with manna, this heavenly bread. And then he fed them out of with water out of a rock. The last place that you would suspect water to come from, out of a rock. He performed these amazing signs for them. You would think they would have no other assurances of God's presence. This is the most impressive way for God to show them, I am with you. I'm your God. Yet Israel repeatedly forgets. They repeatedly rebel, disobey, and ultimately they reject God. And this is astounding to us. This is something that we look at and we say, well, if God performed that in my life today, if he did these amazing wonders, I wouldn't be like Israel. Isn't that how we we look at this passage? We say, how foolish could they be, right? We look at it and we think that. But unfortunately, we find in our own hearts that we act this way in certain times and places too as well. And sometimes it gets to a point that we ask ourselves, how can I be a Christian if if I frequently sin? I know the salvation that God has provided, yet I frequently sin. I find myself like Israel. Maybe I haven't seen these amazing wonders that Israel has seen themselves, but still I know the salvation that God has provided in Christ, and I still sin. You think, what's going to prevent me from this rebellion? And there's a few things I would like you to hear in response to this. If you find yourself this morning in the position of Israel, of rejecting the grace and the mercy and the salvation that God has provided. The first thing we need to see from this passage is that God never treats sin lightly. If there's anything you walk away from this passage at first is God doesn't treat sin lightly. He judges it. You see it over and over again. So we shouldn't take our sin lightly. We shouldn't think of it flippantly. This world wants us to say there's no such thing as sin. But we have to affirm God's truth that says, yes, there is sin, and we have to take it seriously because God takes it seriously. The second thing that we see is that sin is still present with us. We are like Israel at times. 
and we shouldn't be surprised when we sin. That might even be a surprising thing to hear. See, but if we're surprised when we sin, that tells us we don't actually know our hearts the way that God knows our hearts. God is not surprised when we sin. It grieves him, and it should grieve us too. But we should not be surprised. We should know the condition of our hearts are such that we are like Israel, and we can forget the amazing wonders that God has already performed. And the other thing that we see in this passage, though, is that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Is that God continually, repeatedly turns to Israel and forgives them. He atones for their sin, despite all their forgetfulness, despite their rebellion, despite their disobedience. And so that's something that we can take as we look at the life of Israel and we say, how does this relate to me? This is how it does. But ultimately, Israel's sin is a failure to trust God. The thing that this psalm tells us is that they test God, as they put God to the test. Well, what is putting God to the test? Putting God to the test is ultimately saying, I don't trust you enough that you can perform what I think you can perform. They wanted God to act a certain way in their own expectations, not according to what God's expectations they, they, that God had expected to work. They said, this is how I think you should do. This is what I think God looks like for us. I want you to prove your love to me. If you do this, God, then that will prove to me that you love me. You've led me out of, out of slavery. You've led me through the wilderness. You fed me with heavenly bread, with quail, all these amazing signs, but I still don't actually trust your love for me. You, if you do this over here, though, that's when I know that you love me. And this is what I'd like to call if-only Christianity. I think a lot of us at times we live this if-only Christianity. God, if only you do this, then I'll trust you. Then I will know that you really love me. And this takes a lot of different forms in our lives, doesn't it? God, if only you made money appear in my bank account. Right? You made the ocean split apart. You made manna rain down from heaven. Let's let a little manna rain into my bank account, right? If only you do this, then I will really know that you love me. God, if only you provided me that one job so I wouldn't have to worry about my bills. My job isn't sufficient now, but I know that this job out here, that will make everything okay. Sometimes it takes other forms. If only you provided that one person, then I would really know that you loved me. Maybe there's a person in your mind that you think, wow, I would love to have that person in my life. If only you brought them in, then God, I would then, then I would know you loved me. The other way that we see this, the hard way that we see this, is God, if only you took away this illness or the suffering that I'm facing. Because suffering and illness is one of the chief ways that we think you're not present in my life, God. And see, God had did everything that he possibly could to demonstrate to Israel of his faithfulness, of his kindness, and his mercy. He sent them a deliverer in Moses, and yet they failed to trust God. They, they continually failed. They repeatedly put him to, to test. Verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. And so if Israel themselves saw, saw such incredible signs that God performed, it's prideful of our own hearts to think, God, if you do these things, then I will really trust you. 
And this is why the psalmist says, don't forget what God has done. That's the very beginning. Don't forget what God has done. He has already done everything necessary to prove to you his love. And for you and I today, we sit on a different part of time than Israel did. Something more, much more miraculous, much more incredible has happened for us than what happened for them. That Christ has come. The greatest sign of the love of God that could ever be displayed in all of history has been poured out for you and I today. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 1 John 3.1, another promise that we have, another reality that we live in right now as believers, says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. We have no greater sign of God's love for us than what has happened in Christ and the reality that we live in as his children. There's nothing we need to fear in this life. Remember the work that God has accomplished on your behalf. Now, because of this continued sin of Israel, God has to respond. See, we see over and over, Israel sins, but God responds with judgment. He responds with this, these actions of wrath against Israel. And that's our second point that we'll see this morning. God's rejection of Israel. That's a hard word to hear. God rejecting Israel? Really? And I want to show this. This is going to play out ultimately in the end. But God in his holiness cannot dwell with sinful men. The whole Old Testament system was an elaborate system set up to show you that apart from these works here, God cannot stay with you. You would be wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the world apart from God if it were not for this elaborate system that God set up. There were all these purity rituals that they had to do. They had to eat certain foods. They had to do this sacrificial system so that they could show Israel, this is what we have to do so that God can dwell with us. And then in the events of verse 56 and onward, is that God ultimately judges Israel for their disobedience and rebellion. If you look at verse 56, after they've tested and rebelled against God, in verse 57, they turned away from him. Verse 58, they provoked him to anger and moved him to jealousy. And this passage here, it says in, when, in verse 59, when God heard he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. What is the dwelling at Shiloh? Your Old Testament points back to an event in the life of Israel when they had, they had the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent, this ultimate picture where God was dwelling with them among man, among Israel. And this tent would go around with Israel wherever they went, and it would be the sign to them and to the world that our God is with us wherever we go. And yet this event happens where God is so angry at Israel's sin that he sends this tabernacle, this tent. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. That's the place where the tent normally resided. He forsook it and sent it into the enemy's hands as a sign of judgment against Israel. And to have the tabernacle taken away from them was the most profound sign of God's judgment against Israel. It was the way that they saw our God is no longer with us. He has forsaken us. He has rejected us. And the passage goes on. It says, 
He delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe, and then moves on down. But then God cannot leave his children in rejection. He cannot utterly, truly, utterly forsake his people. God actually acts, and he comes back to redeem his people. In verse 65, this astounding verse, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. This is one of the only places, I think the only place, in which God is described as a drunk man. It's astounding. It shocks us. We think, can you even do that? But that's what the psalmist does. And we, how, how do we understand that picture of God like a drunk man? Is that okay? And as I read around and tried to understand this myself, it was just jarring. And the reason it's jarring, I think that uh, John Calvin, he's a guy that lived in the 1600s, helped start the Protestant Reformation. And he said that Israel had become so sinful when God sent them out into captivity into their enemies and sent his tent into the, the captivity of the enemies is that it was like God had become drunk, that Israel had been overrun by their enemies. Verses 63 and, on, and onward describe of Israel being terribly judged for their sin, that, there is, that their enemies had ravaged them. Fire devoured their young men. The priests fell by the sword. Israel was under this terrible judgment of God, and their response was to say, God, where are you? Are you drunk? Are you asleep? Don't you see? We're your people. Where are you? Come save us. But the promise here, the hope that we have, is that God doesn't stay behind this veil of judgment. He could not leave his people entirely. He wakes up from this supposed drunken stupor. And what does he do? He put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. So for you and I, we see both the consequence of our disobedience, but we also see the kindness of God acting for us despite our disobedience. For you and I, we must see in this passage that God always, always defends his people in the end. We might feel the pangs of death in our hearts. We might feel like we're overrun by our enemies, whatever those enemies might be. God always returns to defend his people. But we feel this in our hearts, this, this sense of God's abandonment when we sin. And this is, I think, something that the, the, the Puritans who came over in the Mayflower, they had this way of speaking about it. I don't, always, I don't recommend everything the Puritans did, but some, there are some, a few things they got right in their theology. And they understood this departing presence of God in our lives, this comfort, comforting presence, that when we sin, what God does do, he doesn't utterly reject us when we sin. He doesn't say, you're no longer my child, and we're living in this state between am I saved, and then going back to not saved, and back to saved. That's not what God does. What he does is he removes from this, this comforting presence of his love. He allows us to feel in our hearts that sense of the sorrow that sin has, the judgment that sin has. Even though he removes this from us, he promises again to bring back that comfort of his presence. And King David, who we'll look at again later in this passage, he prayed for this return of God's presence. He said, God, please return this presence to me. Because David did something far worse than I guarantee you almost anybody in this room has done. He murdered Uriah, this high general in his army, and took his wife and committed adultery with her. 
the king of Israel. And he confessed his sin to God, and he says this in Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So we have this warning of when we sin, God will take that comfort of his presence. But we also have this promise. As the Old Testament over and over again says, I am the Lord abounding in steadfast love, forgiving thousands of generations. That's the promise that you and I have, is we have a God that forgives our sin. When we return to him and confess it, he forgives and he gives us back that comfort of his presence. But we might ask ourselves, we are in this wilderness of life. We're in this wilderness wandering at times. And we see ourselves acting like Israel, rejecting God, testing God, disobeying God. And we ask ourselves, if we are disobedient and prone to stray, how can we ever stay true to God? What's going to keep me on this path? And that's where we see at the end of this passage the provision of the shepherd king. Before we can see how this passage is about the shepherd king, we have to see how this connects to who Jesus is in Israel. There's a way that this passage actually connects us to what happens to Israel. And it's fascinating. When I saw it the first time, I was just I was astounded by what this passage, how it connects to Christ and his work. The first thing we have to see is that Christ is the true Israel. See, in Matthew's gospel, he says, he talks about Jesus being identified as the true Israel. He's identified with Israel in his being called out of Egypt. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. This was a passage that was applied to the whole nation of Israel when they were brought, out of, brought in the exodus out of Egypt. And Matthew applies that and says, this is about Jesus. And is being led into the wilderness for his temptation. Just as Israel was led into the wilderness for their temptation, their testing to see that if their heart would be steadfast to the Lord, Christ fulfills that. Christ is the true Israel. Again, Matthew talks about that Christ is identified with Israel in his baptism. That this is the act of God showing this is my true son. This is the true Israel here. In Israel, we see in this passage that the tabernacle, when it was taken by 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 the enemies of God into their camp, away from Israel's presence, that we saw this as a sign of judgment against Israel. We saw this, that this is, Israel looks at it and they say, God is no longer with us. But where Israel was, that sign of the tabernacle was a sign of God's judgment and rejection for them. That for us, Christ is the true tabernacle. John 1 speaks of, it says, the the I can't remember the verse right now. Yeah, but John 1 speaks about Christ being the true tabernacle, that he is the, the, the true tent that went around with Israel, that Christ is that, that tent going around with Israel. And that instead of that tent going out into the hands of the enemies as a sign of judgment, 
Christ, the true tabernacle, is the tent going out into the hands of our enemies for our salvation. You see, in verse 58, we are the ones who have provoked God to wrath by our sin. And instead of God turning in wrath against you and I for our sin, he turned in wrath against his son. See, the glory of God, he delivered his power to captivity and his glory to the hand of the foe. This is Christ being delivered into the hand of the foe, not for our judgment, but for our salvation. And ultimately, it results in Christ's death. Just as it resulted in the death for, in death for Israel, he gave his people over to the sword. God gave his son over to the sword for you and I. In that moment where we see that we think God has utterly failed, his disciples left him, they all fled from him. This cannot be God's Messiah. This cannot be God's dwelling place on earth. He's hanging on a cross. That moment we think God has failed was the pinnacle moment in all of history where God is accomplishing our salvation. And what does God do? What does Christ do? Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. See, that moment where we think God is asleep like a drunk man, God awakes. The Son of God awakes from dead and is resurrected. He proves that God always acts to save his people. This is a picture for you and I that God will never utterly forsake you and I. He must rise to defend you. He must rise to defend me. And ultimately, what is this victory that Christ conquers? What is this enemy that Christ conquers? We saw it in one of our songs. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The ultimate enemy of you and I our sin as it is overcomes us in death. See, death seals for us for all eternity in our sin. And Christ, not only does he overcome our sin, but he overcomes death. See, Christ entered the wilderness for us where we are constantly confronted by our sin, where we're constantly confronted by our enemies, and he conquered them. And now, he is the true king. He is the shepherd king the son of David, come to lead us out of this wilderness. And this is the hope that you and I have. When Christ rose from the dead, he was given the authority to be this king. He was given the authority to be this shepherd. Philippians 2, 8 and through 11 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or the verse that we all know, Matthew 28, says all, when Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Christ rose from the dead, he was seated at the right hand of the Father, and he was given authority over everything. Jesus Christ is that king. He is that king now who can lead you and I through this wilderness. 
And not only is he our king, he is our shepherd. See, when it speaks of David in this passage, what it's pointing forward to is it's saying, there will come a day, a king like David, greater than David, who will lead his people. It says in verse 70, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following nursing ewes he brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. See, we ask that question, what is gonna, if I am so prone to dis- disobey and rebel against God, what is going to lead me through this wilderness of life? And it's Christ. He is our shepherd. He is your shepherd. He will lead you through this wilderness. He has defeated your enemies. And so in conclusion, as God guided Israel in the wilderness, like his own flock, overcoming their enemies, leading them to the promised land, this is the hope that you and I have, that Christ has demonstrated in his resurrection from the dead that he not only will overcome it, our enemies' death and sin, he has overcome them. That is our great promise that we have. And he will lead us through the wilderness that is this life. And not only that, Christ has given you and I the greatest sign of God's unceasing, unfailing love for us. We have no greater sign of God's love for us than what happened to Christ on that cross and in his resurrection from the dead. He has given you the deepest confidence that you could ever have of his love. And so I might be prone to forget my keys, my wallet, and we might be prone to forget what God has done for us. But don't forget what Christ has done for you. Remember that surely God will lead you and I home to his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time when we can hear from your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to remember Christ our Savior, Christ our King, and Christ our Shepherd, who guides us and leads us. And Lord, help us to not forget, help us to not be negligent about what you have done, but to to remember, to teach our children, to teach the coming generations of what you have done in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.